Did you know that about 3 million Americans suffer from glaucoma? Glaucoma is a progressive disease of the eye caused by an asymptomatic, unnoticeable increase in eye pressure that can damage the optic nerve. If left undiagnosed or untreated, glaucoma can significantly disrupt your quality of life and even cause blindness. Though there is no cure for glaucoma, there are treatment options available to control it and slow disease progression. Some common ways to treat glaucoma include eye drops, conventional surgery, and a state-of-the-art microinvasive glaucoma surgery known as MIGS. MIGS is a proven option to reduce eye pressure that can provide 24-7 control over your glaucoma by using micro-devices that can't be seen or felt. Also, unlike more invasive glaucoma surgeries, MIGS is a safer, simpler option with a faster recovery time. Understanding how to take action against your glaucoma early on with a MIGS device is an important piece to navigating your treatment journey to slow disease progression. And now a revolutionary MIGS device is available to treat your glaucoma, iStent Infinite. For those who have failed prior medical and surgical treatment, iStent Infinite is an implantable alternative to eye drops that uses three micro-sized stents that your doctor places inside your eye, designed to create open pathways to maximize drainage, relieve pressure, and slow your disease progression. If your doctor recommended iStent Infinite to you, it could be a great option to finally lower the number of eye drops you take and decrease your eye pressure. If you have failed a prior glaucoma surgery, ask your doctor if iStent Infinite is right for you. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromicel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicel technology. Do your patients know what presbyopia is? There are people who are afraid of the press. Have you talked to your patients about multifocal contact lenses? I've heard the bifocal, but not right, multifocal. Exactly. Do you need help with your multifocal strategy? Learn more at the conclusion of this episode. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Hello and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gelb, the host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. Also, please leave comments. Great news, you can now watch our full-length documentary, Open Your Eyes, on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube movies and shows. And tune into our brand new radio show Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. Central Time on AM 1280 The Patriot. Also, please share your thoughts by emailing me at drkerrygelb at gmail.com. That's drkerrygelb at gmail.com. And visit my website at drkerrygelb.com. Glaucoma is the leading cause of irreversible blindness worldwide. It is estimated that 6 million Americans are living with glaucoma 
half of which don't know they have it. Elevated intraocular pressure or IOP or pressure in the eye is recognized as a major risk factor for the development and progression of glaucoma and lowering eye pressure or IOP or intraocular pressure is currently the only documented method of treating glaucoma. Advances in surgical procedures has put the current standard medication-first treatment into debate among glaucoma experts. Today's guest, North Mississippi optometrist, Dr. Chris May, has given this topic much thought. Dr. May is the center director for the West Tennessee Eye Care Team, Eye Care and Team Eye Care provider for both the Memphis Grizzlies and the St. Louis Cardinals AAA affiliate, Memphis Redbirds. Dr. May currently serves as an adjunct faculty in ocular disease at Southern College of Optometry. Chris, thank you for joining me today. Thanks a lot for having me, Carrie. Appreciate it. So, so let me ask you, you know, you're the optometrist for the Memphis Redbirds. I'm a big baseball fan. Have you seen a lot of famous baseball players come through there? No, I don't. So uh, currently not the provider anymore. But yeah, when I used to do the uh, the athletes, one of the things that was the most fun, we did uh, NBA for a while and uh, minor leagues. Minor league baseball is so pure. It's the most fantastic thing ever. And no, honestly, most of those guys, nobody ever hears from again. They end up uh, going off, but they play because they love it, which makes it so much more rewarding to work with. And that was a really fun time. It was really uh, that, cool. That, that's, great. that's great. That sounds like a lot of fun. So let me ask you, you know, with the advances in surgical procedures, is the paradigm of glaucoma treatment starting to change? That is absolutely the key question here. I mean, it, it is the paradigm is shifting and, you know, words like paradigm shift or things like that get used a lot. And as the, as the shift happens, it's literally a weight shift. I mean, so this went from something where we sat around and not that docs are sitting around letting their patients be harmed, but as we're waiting for things to change, we were waiting for patients to lose vision. And when we saw that and could recognize it and can prove it, react to it. And that's where terms like proactive come into play, which sounds like a cat poster or something else like that. But it is. It's one of those moments where when we become more proactive, we start doing a better job is probably the easiest way to put it. But what we're really doing is we finally got this magic moment where our diagnostic technology, our testing, is meeting up with our ability to react with what we test. And then our treatment is advancing as well, both in its technology and its availability which then means now we have to really do a whole lot better job as eye care providers because the onus is on us now. We've got to find this. We've got to treat this. And so that means rather than just sitting around and waiting for something bad to happen, we we get in there and we make sure that we're doing what, honestly, what most of us are the most passionate about. It's like that minor league ball player that's playing for the love of the game. When it comes to eye doctors, we may argue about a lot of very boring stuff. But fundamentally, when it comes to saving sight and preserving vision, this gets into our core competency and our passion where we get a lot of agreement. But now we've got to step up because we have the tools we need. There's a new concept called interventional glaucoma. Uh, the concept, the way, I, the way I understand it is that it's to treat earlier with some of the surgical procedures that are new, but, although, but they're not as invasive as the, as the previous surgical procedures that we would that we that we're used to 
such as a filter, you know. So right. let me talk a little bit about that concept of interventional glaucoma. And do you think we're going in that direction? I, I think we're absolutely going in that direction. Interventional glaucoma, and it's kind of another one of those terms, right? It's kind of a catch-all, but it it's not a, a treatment or, or really a technique. It, it's a mindset. It, it's an attitude for, for optometrists and for ophthalmologists, for, for eye care providers is we're creating a more custom and a more proactive uh, treatment model for each individual patient. So uh, I do a bunch of competition barbecue. It's the difference between saying, all right, how do I make ribs? And it's like, I put this amount of this on and then I do this and then I smoke for this long and it's going to be this temperature and I take it off at that temperature. Well, that'll make some pretty good ribs. But you also have to know sometimes like, well, what happened? Well, it got cold outside. So I had to go a little longer or you know what? These ribs were a little bigger. I needed a little bit more seasoning. We're all different in the same way that we cook differently. The recipe for patient care has to be absolutely customized. And, and that's what interventional glaucoma is at its heart, is this concept of being active, not just waiting for something to happen, analyzing the risk factors, using all of the tools, all of the seasonings that we have in the cupboard to be able to create the, the, best, the best recipe. But that recipe is for each individual patient. And yes, it does integrate surgery and more active treatment earlier. Uh, just because we don't have to, in the United States, we've always just been like eye drop eye docs, right? So when it came to glaucoma, our attitude was very much, let's put an eye drop in. And if something goes wrong, we'll do something else. And so, and for the most part, that actually works fairly effectively. We can stay there as long as we got a few drops. And as long as they invent new medicines at the faster rate, than we're running out of medicines to treat a patient with, that'll buy us a lot of time. But the problem is, is it is, it's letting the patient get worse. And we're basically just hoping that they outlive their disease process. And we're living longer. And as this goes on, now we have to do a better job. So we're looking at that and, and going, well, what if this surgery, look, it go back a few hundred years, the very first glaucoma surgeries. No, I, This is weird. And it's one of those old history things. They were actually putting horsehair shunts into the eye to kind of wick fluid out of the inside of the eye. Uh, we've come a long way from like, let's poke some horse hair in there and see what happens. Yeah, I don't know how somebody talked to anybody into that, but now our surgical interventions have become what were very functional and good in end-stage glaucoma. So doctors kept those surgeries on the shelf to things that we can take down off the shelf much earlier in the disease process, because we know this patient's going to live a long time. We want them to have a high quality of life, but also now we don't have to have this be just drops and more drops and more drops. You know, you talked about the glaucoma patient getting worse and there's studies that show despite adequate lowering of intraocular pressure, the pressure in the eye, IOP, nearly 42% of patients uh, suffering from glaucoma become blind in at least one eye and 16% become blind in both eyes. You know, that study maybe was a little old, and uh, but that goes to like what you're saying about getting worse. I mean, that was a legitimate study that was done. And obviously we don't want that to happen. No, I mean, it's, I think I'd, I'd even say that that's just a little older study, but that's unacceptable. In this day and age, there's just no reason for us to let that happen. And, and glaucoma, there's a reason why we call it the sneak thief of sight. Right. I mean, it's it's one of those things where I'll say that to a patient 
and you usually get kind of a funny look back like a sneak thing but the worst things these patients every now and then they'll come in and go what happened and I, I can still remember this patient I was an extern this is over 20 years ago I was at VA hospital and I remember this patient he said I woke up this morning and I went blind in one eye and I don't know what's happening everything looks funny and my other eyes kind of dim and weird and we're thinking all these other crazy things that could happen and when we look in and this is a young man he's in his you know, late 40s early 50s we look in and it's in stage glaucoma one eye is already gone, so he's one of that percentage, and the other eye has a very advanced disease. And we're going, when is the last time you had your eyes checked? He said, not since I got out of the service. They haven't been hurting. And and it's just, it's such a mess. It's such a heartbreaker to be in that phase, because now we're so far down that line that this patient is one of those ugly statistics. So it it's one of those moments, though, where the patient goes, but I didn't feel anything. Nothing hurt, doc, when I know. And that, that's why we have to raise awareness. We have to increase our access to testing. We've got to do a better job. And we have to make sure that when we're, we're explaining to patients, whether it's families or kids so that their parents are there, or parents so that their kids know that they're at risk, we're being aware of all of the risk factors and doing a better job diagnosing, treating, and creating better modalities when it comes to, to resolution of symptoms. There's about 3 million people in the U.S. with glaucoma and another 3 million that are glaucoma suspects. I would argue it's probably a lot more than that. I agree. I would say it's close to like 10 million people that are glaucoma suspects just from, you know, just from seeing so many patients. And so what would be your definition of a glaucoma suspect? Because we don't want people to become blind, just like when we see somebody in eye care who is at risk for diabetes you know, we see little microaneurysms in there in, in, in the in the capillaries in the eye, and we could recommend uh, that they have nutrition and and exercise, et cetera, see the appropriate people for that. But for glaucoma, preparametric glaucoma, that was a term that was was termed a, a number of years ago, which means that, you know, this is somebody who is at very high risk for getting glaucoma, or we're calling them a glaucoma suspect. In your mind, who is a glaucoma suspect and how do we manage those people? Well, it's, it's actually interesting. So I was at the uh, Optometric Glaucoma Society meeting was at the Academy of Optometry a couple of weeks ago. And we actually were discussing pre-parametric glaucoma. And one of the things I was joking about, and this is, it's a tough way to look at it, but in the South in particular, pre-parametric glaucoma almost doesn't exist. And the reason is because they already have the damage. So that it's not a it's not a good thing that it doesn't exist. It's a bad thing. I actually looked at there was one statistic I read. You're you're name off a couple that it said 60 million people worldwide have glaucoma currently, and by in the next 20 years, by 2040, I think that number was projected to be something like 112 million. That's a huge base out there of people that are at risk for losing sight. But when it comes to a suspect, I think we need to look. First and foremost, look at, at the genetics and, and look at our just base risk factors. Okay, so if you're African, uh, Asian, Hispanic, you're at increased risk. If you're over 60, you're at increased risk. Your family history matters. So good example, my father-in-law has glaucoma. Uh, I diagnosed him about 15 or 20 years ago, and we've managed it. He's had lasers. He's had surgeries. He's had all sorts of meds. But that means that my wife and my children are at increased risk. So my daughter is an optometrist and she's at increased risk. It's one of those moments where she has to know that she's monitored regularly. And we all know eye doctors, by the way, we're the absolute worst about getting eye care 
go ahead and tell everybody that let's have the, the 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 moment yes i know i'm terrible about it too but making sure we are looking at high risk patients now strong prescriptions like really really far sighted really really near sighted that increases your risk as well the only good thing about that is most of us if we have really strong prescriptions we seek eye care pretty regularly and so that's a good thing as long as we're keeping up there um and then there's some little bit more things to get off into the distance, like someone who, if you have to take steroids every day, uh, if there's uh, if you've had trauma to an eye, diabetes increases risk, uh, certain vascular issues can as well. But for the, the big part of it is kind of just understanding what happens in your family. And it is amazing the number of times we'll have a patient that's suspect. We look at it, and we're going, eh, you know, you're young, you're healthy, but your optic nerves look a little funny and your pressure is a little high. Anybody in your family have glaucoma? It's amazing. The answer is always no. I was like, well, do me a favor. Just check with the family. Ask around a few people. And they'll come for a follow-up. We're doing a little testing. And as we're looking at things, it's like, oh, did you, did you talk to your family? It's like, actually, yeah, I talked to my mom. And it turns out uh, two of my uncles, uh, one of my aunts, my grandmother, and her mom all had something and went blind before they passed away. But that's forever ago. You know, okay, that is this this big blinking light that says, you know, be careful. Let's make sure we've got our guard up on these patients. That patient's a very high risk suspect because you got vision loss in your family. But then those other things come in there. You got to know know where you're coming from. I I think the genetic testing aspect of that is going to be really interesting, especially for this interventional model in the next few years. We're getting better right now. We know all of these genetic spots, these tests to do. Everybody's done the, you know, you, you do the little swab and send off and, and find out where you're really from. You know, my wife thought she's Russian, turns out they're German, you know, that kind of thing. And so as we're, we're doing these tests, whether it's gene like so tiger, foxy or chat, there's all these things we name. We don't know what those mean yet, but as we figure that out more, it does give us a, a unique opportunity to be able to screen for that. I think it also gives us a little moment of discussion. So for my kids, that's their choice, whether or not they'd want to be screened genetically. Do you want to know? You know, some people are going, no, I don't want to know. Other people are going, I don't know my family history. What do I do? And it's like, well, now we can screen and we can know some things. That's going to be really exciting. You know, the whole concept of epigenetics, you know, you're at risk for a disease, but you can mitigate it sometimes with a good lifestyle. And, and there's been some studies to show that if you eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, you meditate, uh, that if you take vitamin C, believe it or not, uh, there's certain things, uh, green tea has been shown to decrease the risk of glaucoma. So yeah, I mean, if you have a genetic snip toward a specific disease, but, but there's the concept of epigenetics and exercise, of course, uh, could decrease pressure by about 18%. So, I mean, if if you have the if you're if you're genetically predisposed, we want to have a good lifestyle because what's good for your eye is good for your heart. That's absolutely I, I, my uh, my thing. I say all the time is you know it's it's all connected. So it's no matter what we do, and a lot of patients do ask you, well, what do I do or what did I do wrong? That is one other thing that happens is a patient's crossing from that glaucoma suspect to, hey, yep, we've got some things we're going to do. We're going to need to start treating. Let's have a discussion on what to do. Usually the next question is, what do I do now? What did I what did I eat that was wrong? And what do I need to eat that is right? And there's no simple answer to that. But I think ultimately it does become looking at the body holistically. And there's things that we can do nutritionally. There's choices. Smoking, big, big time. One of those things where we're going, hey, look, you got to pick one thing to do. Let's talk here. Um, and, and knowing your risk factors, knowing what you can do. Is 
I think, important. I think one of the bigger things, though, in this case is it is somewhat freeing to go, yes, your genetics are you. So it's okay. Don't beat yourself up. Don't worry about this. Don't worry about that. Let's make sure we're taking walks. Let's make sure we're eating right. Uh, a lot of times, I had one patient, you know, I want to take uh, ginkgo. It's like, okay, I, I, let's look at it. Let's talk about it. Let's look at your type of glaucoma. It comes back to that that interventional model, right, of being custom and proactive. So what fits one patient, hey, your cholesterol's through the roof. Let's work on your circulation for somebody else is going, no, 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 no. Look, you're already on a blood thinner. You're thinned already. We've got some things we want to do. We don't, let's not go grabbing herbal supplements without telling everybody what we're using and what we're adding. It's got to be custom for every single person. And that's the challenging part. And I think it's also sometimes can be the frustrating part because it is comes to a Jack Spratt moment where you're going, well, what I need for me and my health may not match what my wife needs for her and her health. And which means that it's one of those moments where we have to take responsibility for ourselves and make sure we're on top of it. Uh, and more importantly for me, it means that, no, I can't just eat all the stuff that I don't want it, you know, that I want to have. I have to make good choices. And uh, But what's good for my heart is good for my eyes. And what's good for my eyes is tends to be good for my kidneys and fingers and toes and everything else. Now, that's a good point, because when you mention that people are on all these supplements, but they don't mention it to the doctor because there's been studies that to show that if you take calcium supplements or iron supplements, it actually makes glaucoma and increases your risk of getting glaucoma. But if you eat foods that contain it, it's not the case. Right. So, you know, so I think, it, I think, I think it's, I think it's really important that people, you know, are, are share this information with their physician. So the, the doctor could help guide you uh, to the proper treatment. MacuHealth, your science-born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science. Now, you know, there's about, of the blindness in the United States, about 9 to 12% of the blindness is glaucoma, same world, same worldwide. You know, we didn't even explain what is glaucoma and what do you think the cause of glaucoma, uh, the mechanism of glaucoma, do, or do we even know the mechanism of glaucoma? I tell you that that would pick a fight at the wrong uh, eye care dinner meeting, right? You know that's it is incredibly boring when we start getting into this uh, the to the weeds of what is glaucoma. I think if we asked a patient that's been treated for glaucoma, you ask them what's glaucoma, you'd probably get the the simplest, most direct answer, which is oh the the pressure was high in my eyes and it's damaging my optic nerve, and they kind of they've learned that as a parrot thing. We've said it so many times that they've got it in. I think we can overfocus and eye care on that because that eye pressure becomes something that we sort of see as that the only modifiable factor to the point of talking about, hey, you know, health matters, uh, nutrition matters. Let's let's get every advantage we can do. Uh, but a bigger answer would be, what is glaucoma? Well, it's an optic atrophy. Well, what does that mean? Well, anybody that's ever had a cast on your arm, right? You know, they took the cast off and you look at your arm and you're going, what happened to all my muscles? It's like, well, they, they atrophy. So, okay, well, why? Well, they weren't being used. Well, in your eye, it's not that it's not being used. It's it's a circulation and a blood flow and a genetic and a bunch of other stuff that we're still trying to understand completely. But it, it's basically a fight. And if we have blood flow coming in, trying to nourish that eye, and we have eye pressure pushing back. So if that blood flow is not very good and that eye pressure is pretty high, what happens is just like a plant, it, it starts to wilt. 
right? So however, if we've got good blood flow and low pressure, however we manage to do that, so our nutrition is flowing in and that, that plant grows and, it, and, it, and that nerve is nourished. So we don't get that atrophy. Now, the why on that, boy, we could go all day on that, couldn't we? That is whether it's genetic or trauma or reactions, or is it damage to the drainage system, or is it inside the drainage system, or is it this filter point or that filter point? And I think the hardest part is that every one of those answers is right for somebody. For There is a glaucoma that what you're looking at, and you're going, you have... I'm sorry, you were born with pediatric glaucoma. The way that your drainage is shaped is just really different than everybody else's. Well, no, you're, you know, you've been diabetic and we've got blood vessels growing in the front of the eye and that that's neovascular glaucoma. And that was a tough one. That's a really difficult one to win that fight on. But I think that's another spot, right? Where we get back to this interventional loop where you're going, well, so then it's not that as simple as that one recipe for every type of glaucoma anymore that it's one gene for every type of glaucoma. It, it's it's different. So then whether that patient has late onset, you know, we have just a standard open angle glaucoma, the most common of all of them versus closed angle glaucoma completely changes how we treat it. So then the interventional model, then why wouldn't we customize how we treat every one of those open angle patients to know what's going to fit them and their lifestyle and their family and their, their situation? I mean, honestly, it'd be a very different treatment for somebody I have a handful of patients that are, they're, uh, it's a family and they're in missions in Africa. So it is not as easy as them to run down to the pharmacy and pick up some drops. So our choice of a first line treatment for someone is like, I won't be back for 13 to 18 months guaranteed. Then we're making completely different choices to somebody that lives in a major metro area, has a support system around them, or is for that matter going, hey, look, I'm super busy right now with travel. I just need something to get me going while we're getting my, this pressure stuff under control. So I think defining glaucoma is, is a tricky and a nebulous thing. But fundamentally, what we know we're, we're doing is fighting that sneak thief of sight. Something, no matter why, is causing damage to the optic nerve. And currently, our only thing that we've really figured out how to do well is to control pressure. And so that's that's one of our big foci. But I think you got to look at it as all the other things that we can focus on too, because it is, it's a holistic human being. We talked about a little bit about symptoms of glaucoma before. Uh, tell us what the symptoms are typically of glaucoma. Are there any symptoms? What do you think? So, and that's, that's where this is, is probably the hardest for patients because it comes into that, that patient example of, but I'm not hurting. You know, I don't feel anything. What's going on? Now, there are, depending on the type, so for instance, open angle glaucoma, the most common one, early open angle glaucoma, the patient may not even notice anything. In fact, actually, even on a routine, just very fundamental eye exam, so like reading the chart, everything else, they may look pretty good. Everything looks pretty good. But we start, as we get to the mid-late phases, starting to have some side vision damage, things like that. Now, angle closure glaucoma are very high pressures. Now, those are different. That patient's going to have headache, foggy vision, pain, sudden vision loss, or seem like the, the vision's smoky. Most of the time, those are those are one-sided. So that patient's going, something's wrong. It's like the worst migraine of my life, and, and this feels terrible. Frankly, those are much easier to diagnose. They're a lot harder to treat and manage longer term, but they're when it comes to what the patient's looking for, at least it felt like something. Open-angle glaucoma has that sneak thief. It's, it is not all that uncomfortable to have an eye pressure that is moderately elevated. 
And so if we add that to family risk factors and everything else, the patient basically doesn't notice very much. And that's why it's so important from an eye exam standpoint to make sure that we're examining these patients, that they're getting thorough eye exams. But we also, when we're doing that, need to increase our access to good testing. So what doesn't do is to just, uh, you know, a lot of patients think they know, they're like, oh, I had the, I had the puff of air. You know, they, they know the puff of air. So and they go, what happens? Oh, they puff the air in my eye and, and I don't know, I guess I'm okay or I'm not okay. I don't know what happened. So, and that's where making a little bit more thoughtful uh, processing on, on information is a place where we need to get. So, and I think it's also a place where we can do a really good job with technology. You know, if we look at that patient care technology, instead of waiting on that patient to have symptoms, let's intervene. Let's, as we're seeing patients, you know, let's make sure we check everybody's pressure, right? You know, that actually was pretty difficult 50 years ago to check everybody's pressure. Now, that's not that hard. We have all sorts of different technology to do it. It doesn't have to be scary. No, it doesn't have to be the puff of air. So we have lots of things we can do to do that. And let's look in that optic at that optic nerve. We can image optic nerve so much better now than ever before. AI is going to make this even more interesting. Now, currently, a lot of that AI is focused on, on diabetes because we're, like you said, we're looking for those little aneurysms. We're looking for the, the hemorrhage, hemorrhages and hemes because it's a place we can make difference in, in their systemic life and their overall health. But I, I believe that'll be something that integrates into the system as well. Using AI and genetic testing and all these other things will be great, but we have to get the patient in. We have to start that process somewhere. You know, it's, it's interesting. I have about 500 to 600 active glaucoma patients in my practice. And we were always taught in school that glaucoma has no pain. I mean, that's what we were taught many years ago. I'm sure they still teach that today. And generally, that is the case. But every once in a while, somebody does have pain when they have the pressure goes up, they do get eye pain. I've had a, a few patients in my career, not a lot, but a handful of patients uh, one who that I can think of offhand who had sinus surgery because they had eye pain, you know, pain around their eye. Oh, and what it was, it was because their eye pressure was high and it wasn't that they had sinus. And they and this person happened to have a, a chronic angle closure uh, that you talked, which typically can have pain. Uh, and then they were treated with a little hole in the iris, the chronic angle closures, the iris is blocking the, the drainage and the fluid can't get out through the drain as well. Uh, and they have something we call relative pupillary block. But basically, we're opening up the, the iris with a little laser, and we're letting the fluid through. And the, the, this person went through a number of sinus surgeries and all kinds of problems, never had their eyes examined. And that's all it turned out to be. So for people listening at home, if you have eye pain, it could be glaucoma. Typically, open glaucoma doesn't have eye pain, but I've seen it. It does have eye pain sometimes. You know, some people are very sensitive to pain and their pressure will be at 20, 27 and have open glaucoma and they'll have pain. It happens. So I just think that that's an interesting point. And even though we're taught and probably on the state board of optometry, the national boards, they probably ask you, does open angle glaucoma have pain? The answer is probably no on, on the board, but it's not true if you see a lot of glaucoma patients like both of us. So if you could just comment on that. First of all, completely agree. If we, I think if you have enough glaucoma patients, you'll have an exception because uh, glaucoma always finds a way to fight back and be a strange thing. But I had, I can actually think of a patient when you were describing that, that it, it's interesting. I had one at each end of that spectrum. I had a patient years ago that came in, her initial pressure 
was 78. And it was one of those pressures where you're going, that is a, that's an incredibly high pressure. What is it? And I rechecked it and it's like, that can't be right. You know, and you're thumping the, the tonometer. It's like, somebody dropped something. Take her to the other room. I'll check it in the other room and check it again. 79. You're like, oh no, what's this? It's like, do you have a headache? No. Vision bothering? No. Fluctuation in vision? No. And, and you're going, okay, well, let's talk a little bit. And it's actually tough to convince that patient that something's wrong because they're going, I don't know why you guys are freaking out. You know, calm down. I feel fine. And you're like, I know you feel fine, but we're worried for you. The other extreme, I had one patient and she'd had multiple glaucoma surgeries over the years and she could come in and she'd like, doc, my pressure's going to be up today. No, ma'am, you can't feel whether your pressure's up or down or anything else. Well, about the fifth or sixth time she was right, I started listening to her. And, but she could tell if her pressure was 22 or 25 or under 20. She could, oh, no, it's going to be there. That is a great point, by the way, on sinus issues, because there's a lot of times it gets, it gets blamed on migraine or sinus issues or anything else. And I think talking about, you know, one of our new places in glaucoma surgeries, these minimally invasive glaucoma surgeries, MIGS surgeries, and the, the little laser hole, the peripheral iridotomy you're talking about is probably the first of our MIGS procedures, if you wanted to call it something like that. And I, to go through a couple of sinus surgeries, those are, those are tough surgeries to have had something like that. And then find out with this little bitty procedure that was done in the office at your eye doctor's clinic, you, you're going, wait, I'm fixed. And like, now we're so much better than we were before to get that flow running. Right. But it is, it, it can be a miracle in it, but it is a, a huge moment in making sure that we're, we're listening to symptoms. We're paying attention to some of those symptoms that might not always line up quite as easy because I, like I said, if you looked up the definition for boards, it probably says painless loss of sight uh, on that definition. You know, but you make a great point because you do get those patients who have pressure in their 50s, 60s, even 70s that have no symptoms and they have no pain. So I don't want to minimize that. I mean, you got to get your, if you're listening to this, you want to make sure you're not one of the people who get blindness from glaucoma because glaucoma can cause blindness and it will cause blindness if you ignore it. Now let's talk a little bit about, we talked about symptoms of glaucoma. Let's talk about some of the signs of glaucoma. So when we cross from signs or from symptoms to signs, probably a better way to look at that, that's where we start to get where the doctor, it's on us at this point, right? So now we're starting to see, what do we see? What are we looking at? And that goes back to you talking about imaging. What is that imaging seeing? And for a glaucoma patient, they hear us say, you know, cupping in these words. But for those of us who don't know that, we're going, what are we talking about? So the my favorite description, uh, and, and again, maybe this is back to the Southern thing. I just realized most of my descriptions go with food. I probably need to work on that a little bit. But, you know, we got the donut. And, you know, and a lot of glaucoma patients, they know about the donut because they're going, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. But the for those of you that don't, when we're talking about the donut, so you can imagine a donut. So if you go to, to Dunkin' and you got your donut and it's got a hole in the middle of it. And no, you can't just buy the, the holes. we got to get the whole donut. So then if you're looking at the average patient, let's say that that hole in the middle of donut's about a third. So you got a good normal donut. You're not going to complain and say this thing's skimpy. And glaucoma, the main sign that we talk about is that increased pressure when we're talking about that flow, right? So if the pressure is too high and it's not letting that blood flow in, so, well, the flowers are wilting. Well, what happens is that donut looks like it has less dough. So the hole in the middle of the donut's getting bigger. That is probably, if we were talking about it from a clinical standpoint, you talked about that national boards question that, that, that students are having to ask. If we go ask one of my second or third year students, what are we watching for? That's what they're going to say from a main sign. They're watching that optic nerve. 
So I take issue with it for one reason. If I take part of the hole out of the middle of your donut, it's gone. And Carrie, just like you said, that once it's gone, it's gone. I cannot add back donut. Once that damage is done, once that patient is blind, that's forever. And that's where if we're waiting and watching for this type of thing to change, we're waiting until that damage is already done. Now, by the time we can measure it, and our machines are so much better. Our technology here has just leapt forward in the last 20 years. I mean, it's amazing. When I first came out, you know, we basically, we had visual fields. So we're testing side vision and we could do photos and, uh, and we could take pressure. And other than that, that was about it. So we, we would look and stare and we'd, we'd do a lot of, you know, chin scratching in the microscope. So we shine a bright light at you and we sit back and go, oh, maybe, and then look at a picture and then come back in and then go back and forth. That, it would, thank God that's not where we are anymore. You know, what, the technology we have now, when it comes to science, we don't have to wait on that optic nerve for, we don't have to wait for the donut for us to be happy with the donut and get it at home, right? We can figure this out way sooner. That is a little bit more um, intensive when it comes to treatment and, and monitoring because it does, you know, it, it's not as simple as just the old eye exam where you go in, you do some ones and twos, you get the puff air and you run out. So, but as we're doing imaging now, we can look at imaging. One of our imagers, the patient doesn't have to be dilated that we use in my clinics and we can image every patient we have. And we try to image every single patient we have because what's wonderful is being able to have images that go back to 2002, 2003 in our database. Well, now I can look at something and go, okay, I know you moved away. Now you're back. Hey, look, here's your donut. Here it was in 2003. Here it is today. But my problem is what would have been ideal was for me to be able to tell in about 2004, 2005, that something was changing and have been more able to intervene in there. So that testing is a little bit more involved. Visual field testing is one of those things that patients that have visual fields, you always know who's had a visual field. So this is where you, you know, Traditionally, the patient's sitting inside this machine that looks a little bit like a refrigerator. You got your head in the refrigerator and you're clicking a button when it flashes a light. Uh, if you've ever had a hearing test where sometimes you hear the tone and sometimes you don't, it's like that, but with a light. So some are bright, some are dim. It is universally hated by patients. <laughs> I don't know what your patients say, but mine are always like, you know, do I have to do the thing today? Like, which things? Like the, the clicky things. Like, uh, yes, that is what we're doing today. But that our ability to do that testing is, I think, better than it used to be. It's faster than it used to be for sure. So it's it's less invasive. We can now, though, rather than waiting until that nerve is damaged, and about half of those nerves have to be gone in an area for that visual field machine to start pick up that it's damaged. So again, we're reacting. Now we can be more proactive using devices like our OCTs, and those tomographers are able to take incredibly precise measurements of the optic nerve, so we know exactly what the shape of the donut is, uh, in addition to the tissue around it to tell how healthy it is. Is it thinning? Are there focal areas that are starting to drop out that are showing us where stress is? Uh, and then electrodiagnostic testing used to be something, uh, well, when we were in optometry school, that was something that you spent about one day on. We usually had one very odd professor that they didn't let out very often that was like you know, way off in the back of the building that used these machines. And there were big, elaborate electrodiagnostic devices. So they're putting, for you and I's hair, it wouldn't be a problem, but but you're putting these electrodes on. So for anyone who knows a, an EEG, it's like that, but for the eye. That testing has not only become easier to do in office, then it's miniaturized, then it's become more reliable. And that testing is amazing. 
So our ability to detect changes now, our ability to detect signs, so much better. But that also means that our definition of signs has changed. And what's wonderful about that, but also challenging about that, is that means that that patient goes, but I feel fine. But I see fine. Doc, I read the little thing you had on the chart over there. I'm fine. And we're going, well... But let's look at what's happening here. Let's look at what this side vision test looks like. It has a little spot or two. Let's look at what this electrodiagnostic does. It says that that same area, it mirrors up. And let's measure this with this other device. And let's compare these numbers with these databases as we go. And that means that, that our definition of science has really changed. And so our definition of glaucoma, what we used to call pre-parametric glaucoma, we should be finding ways to intervene on those patients before they ever have that visual field loss. That's our goal, to have nobody ever go blind from glaucoma ever again. You know, for the visual field and for the OCT, the scanning laser test that looks at the, that scans the little nerves that make up the big nerve and the side vision test that you were talking about, they have a program on it called glaucoma progression analysis. So it allows us to be able to see if the person if on that particular test of there is change. And as the eye doctors are treating glaucoma, we're looking for change, change in a negative direction where the nerve is getting worse. Talk about glaucoma progression analysis or GPA. How do you use that as far as uh, tests, as far as uh, diagnosing a patient or looking for progression? I think... At its most fundamental, progression analysis, whether it's done by the machine, whether it's done by external software, whether, however it is that we decide to do it, whether we're going to look at numbers, because we get a lot of data out of our visual field equipment now. So that progression analysis, I guess the best analogy would be like taking any other measurement. Right. So if we took a measurement and we have one point, I don't know very much. I only know this point. But if I'm taking another measurement, and I find a point here, it's like, okay, well, at least now I know, are these points going up, we're going down, what are we doing? And you talked about that negative change. But when we start to be able to trend analyze, this gets very different. And glaucoma progression analysis, especially within fields, now the same technology, uh, the same analysis can be applied when it comes to our OCTs. So we're measuring the nerves that make up the nerve, and we're doing the same thing. Wait a minute, where were we in... 2015, 16, 17, and we start to draw this curve and we go, uh-oh, wait a minute. My pressures are great, but look at this curve. And the patient's going, no, I'm fine. Everything's great. And we're, But we start to watch and it lets us project into the future. And if we look at that and we go, okay, I know you're not having trouble right now. Maybe you're starting to notice some minor little things like night vision is just not as easy as it used to be. These these nebulous little complaints that I think we all have, we all chalk up to going, eh, you know, I'm a little older than I used to be. That's probably why. Well, we blow that off. But then if we start looking at that trend, that can be a warning sign, especially if we're projecting out and we're looking at, you have a patient that is young and healthy in every other way, and they're 75 years old. That's a lot more responsibility as an eye care provider. That patient is probably not just living to 80 or 85 anymore. I've got 25 more years to keep this optic nerve seeing. And we start to look at that progression analysis. And if we trend that out and we go, uh-oh, I'm going down too fast for this patient. And I'm not going to get where we need to go. And 
to your point on the talking about the the patients that have vision loss in one eye, you know, anytime God gives us two eyes or two anything, it's because one's a spare. So, but that doesn't mean you want to use your spare, right? We want to we want to keep everyone living full, fulfilled lives. We want to be able to do everything that we want to do. You want to have that contrast at nighttime, able to let us do the things that we enjoy. So it's not about just not going blind. And that's where our analysis has the ability now to really have a, a robust analysis of what's happening within that structure, what's happening within that function of the eye. And that way, as we do that, we know how we can maintain that longer term. But that's also a place where, let's say we do this a few years ago and we go, okay, things are progressing. Okay, well, what are we going to do? It's like, well, you're already on three medicines. So I guess another one, I don't know. Well, each medicine we add, we know this, it doesn't add up quite as much as the first one. Right? So then you take a one uh, ibuprofen for your headache. Okay, well, let's take two ibuprofen for your headache. How much better did it do? Well, maybe a little better, but not magic. Well, what if you took a different medicine? Okay, well, maybe that's a little bit better. What if we took four different medicines? Well, if the first two didn't do it, the, the last two probably aren't going to get us there either. So this gets to be kind of that type process. But not to mention, there's a patient there. There's a human being that has to use all of these drops and do all of this treatment. So let's say that, yeah, you're doing okay. We're going to have to get this under, but you're on four medicines. You know, one of those medicines is three times a day. Two of those medicines are two times a day. And one is nighttime. Well, now all of that additional effect is what it took to get you where you need to go to try to stop, stop that progression. But what we're doing to stop that progression means four medicines worth of side effects, all of these drops to use. And, and frankly, nowadays, we have to also consider the expense of all these medicines. I mean, it, it, at what point does the patient go, okay, mercy, I, I am paying so many copays, I don't know what to do. I mean, how do I afford my treatment? That's where the interventional models come in and where these the ability to look at laser surgery options, whether it's in a narrow angle like the 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 periphery the little hole that you're talking about. In an open angle patient, there's another type of laser treatment, selective laser trabeculoplasty that we've done for years that is it's proven. It's a really good technique. And we're looking now at that, you know, that's probably a better way to add rather than just stacking all these medicines. Hey, I have a procedure we can do that stays in, it's there. And it recognizes that there's a human being behind here that has to do all of these things. Not to mention now, those glaucoma surgeries have moved from, we're way better than the old horsehair in the eye trick I was joking about earlier. And now we've got very elegant, minimally invasive glaucoma surgeries that have, it's not this big, long, dangerous, uncomfortable process that's scary. And honestly, I'm guilty of something here that I, we have to have a moment of uh, of of admission. I have used glaucoma surgery as a weapon in my practice. I have said for years, if you don't use your drops, we're going to have trouble. If you don't use your drops, I'm going to send you to the surgeon. You don't want the surgeon. To, it was like when dad's coming home, right? You know, oh, you wait till dad gets home. He'll get home. He's going to really show you what for. Better use your drops or you're going to have to go to the glaucoma surgeon. So I'm setting them up for failure and I'm using fear to get compliance rather than teaching my patient in an individual way. Hey, I hear you on the drops. Here's what we need to do that's going to be the best combination for you. But understanding that glaucoma surgery can be a positive thing. That laser for your glaucoma can be an, a good outcome. This can be part of your recipe for your successful glaucoma management. But the ability to see these trends 
moves our need for all of these other tools way up. Because now we're not just talking about a couple of eye drops. We're talking about a complex mix of, of interventions that are going to be able to make this patient able to do everything that they want to do, prevent vision loss, but most importantly, just be able to enjoy their life and not be have a burden of glaucoma treatment. Yeah, and we're going to get into those surgeries in detail in a little bit. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit oiebroadcasting.com and sign up today.